0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Jury selection continues in the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd, despite concerns that the unprecedented $27 million settlement with Floyd's family would taint the jurors' perceptions. The defense attorney argued that the city's unusual decision to announce the settlement just as the criminal trial begins could prevent Chauvin from receiving a fair trial. The judge has yet to decide on the defense attorney's renewed motion to move the trial out of Minneapolis. And both sides clashed today over how much the jury should hear of Floyd's own actions during a drug arrest in 2019. Joining me is Krista Groshek, a former public defender and managing attorney of Groshek Law in Minneapolis. Krista, how unusual is it to have a civil settlement before a criminal trial?
1: It's extraordinarily unusual. In fact, I don't think it's ever happened in Minnesota. The cases that I am familiar with and some other ones that I um, looked up all proceed in the same way. The criminal case goes to trial first, and then the civil case gets adjudicated. So this is extraordinarily strange. Um, And... You know, it's been sort of postulated that there's a fair amount of manipulation and maneuvering with some of these things, and I don't know how one gets past that idea when you see this settlement occurring in jury selection. Now, on one hand, at least it occurred in jury selection, right? For sure, if it hadn't, I don't know how they could move forward. I think a mistrial motion would have been granted. But this has never happened before, and we've never had a settlement of this size before. I mean, this this is an astronomical settlement.
0: Explain why the news of the settlement might prejudice the jury.
1: It is a very, very difficult thing to get jurors to understand the difference between, you know, different kinds of litigation and cases, especially when it involves the same set of facts. I think, for example, with the OJ case where he was acquitted, but then later paid the family a large civil settlement. There was a number of people who, once they saw that, went, oh, well, of course, because he was guilty, right? So, so the same inference applied there that I think is likely to apply here. I don't know how a jury can conceptually wrap their head around that, especially because the most information they're going to be given about the civil case is in jury selection. And the court's like, it's civil, different standards of proof, different lawyers, right? Different courts, state versus federal. Don't worry yourself about that. I don't think that is enough of an explanation for them to hang their hats on to go, yeah, you're right. I'm just going to disregard the fact that that happened It is hugely prejudicial to the defense. And in fact, It's kind of ridiculous. Um, I think at best, it's irresponsible. What's interesting is Keith Ellison is our Minnesota Attorney General, and his office is prosecuting Derek Chauvin. His son is on the Minneapolis City Council that awarded this large civil settlement. When Keith Ellison was asked if he knew about the settlement prior to it being announced, his answer was no comment.
0: Benjamin Crump, the family's attorney, has said, well, it's the family's Seventh Amendment right And also that the publicity about the settlement is slight compared to the publicity about George Floyd's death.
1: I think that's a ridiculous assertion. Let's see. In the Seventh Amendment, so people have a right to, you know, have their controversies uh, examined in court and settled. Okay, we know that. But, you know, certainly uh, that talks about dollar settlements, right? This is about money. This is about Chauvin's fighting for his liberty, his life, his reputation. And, you know, I, I don't so much as blame the family and I don't blame Crump. Fine. Yeah. He's, he's going to push for whatever leverage he can get at whatever time he can get it. He can do that. There's nothing wrong with him doing that. Lawyers position themselves all the time. Right. It's our job to do that. He positioned his clients well and he got, you know, a great settlement for them. So I don't think the family's doing anything wrong. I think the city was irresponsible. I mean, the city, you know, in theory, to want all of its citizens to have a fair trial. I understand they also want their citizens not to be victims of what they believe is police brutality, etc. But there's a time and a place to figure that out and still afford the person on trial a fair trial. I think the city government is to blame, and Jacob Fry is a part of it. He's our mayor, and he opened his huge mouth shortly after this video footage came out, and he said he thinks that Derek Chauvin and his cap, you know, colleagues are all guilty. And he fired them without pay you know, or whatever. His, his, his police sergeant fired him without pay, and he publicized it then. So did our governor, so the chief of police. I mean, these guys have engaged in this pattern of irresponsibility since the beginning. And, and frankly, in my opinion, they should be ashamed.
0: When this was first brought up by the defense, the judge seemed to indicate that, yes, you know, this was a concern, that there might be a problem. He called back some of the jurors and re-questioned right. them and got rid of two. But It seems as if it's going to be very hard to move the trial, to get him to move the trial out of Minneapolis once jury selection's already started.
1: So this judge is a guy on a mission, and he approaches all of his cases this way. I've tried cases in front of him. When you're set for trial, you go to trial. He keeps cases moving. He doesn't allow for a lot of what I would call dalliances. Or time wasting in jury selection. Some judges are more liberal about it. You can really get to know your juries more. He doesn't really allow for a lot of that. He takes the reins like he did when he brought the seven jurors back. So frequently ask questions. He'll so kind of hurry lawyers along. He wants cases to move. And, you know, the city has spent millions of dollars in getting this case ready to try, from security to additional officers, snipers that sit on the roof. You know, there's no court trials and jury trials happening in Hennepin County, although they might add one more for some reason. But that was the plan. The Chauvin trial gets the whole courthouse, 26 floors and 26 times four courtrooms apiece. Hundreds of court hearings are shut down because of Chauvin. And so I think he's on a mission. I think he's going to try to make that happen. And, you know, he's kind of in a pickle. This is out there now. Right. And so is time going to cure it. Are people really going to forget about it? I don't know. I think that's unlikely. So I don't think continuance really helps. Maybe it's a greater likelihood that people outstate, you know, living in rural areas are less engaged and are not watching the trial every day like we are here in Minneapolis. I personally thought from the beginning that would have been the right move, you know, move this trial out state. But, you know, there's a, a lot of advantages that come to the defense if you move it out state. It tends to be that people who live in rural areas are more pro-police. So I think the other thing the court thought in terms of security, I mean, Hennepin County has state-of-the-art everything, and so they'd be in a better position people-wise. And security from electronic, you know, contraptions that they use to monitor and watch people, he thought they could do it better there but he's in a bad spot. What do you do? It's out there. And so now he's got to determine if the lawyers can ask her questions to get to the heart of whether or not they're biased and whether or not he's got a biased or poison pool. That's what he's got to figure out. And that's going to take time. So I wouldn't say it's out of the question, but it, it does seem like if he can push through, he will. And that's consistent with what I know of Judge Cahill.
0: Let's talk about some of the motions that are pending. The defense wants to tell the jury about Floyd's arrest for drugs in 2019. How likely is it that the judge will allow that evidence in?
1: The difference between the defense bringing the motion in the past and now is that it's my understanding that the defense has recently disclosed about 1,000 pages of additional information, some of which included details about that arrest, and in particular, what Mr. Floyd was told about his use of opioids at that arrest, and I think Judge Kittle is really interested in it. The new information showed that he behaved almost identically to how he did in the case that's being tried, you know, saying he couldn't breathe, calling out for his mama, claiming to be disabled. Well, what they saw was, you know, he, he was literally eating, chewing drugs in front of them because they, I guess, have made an arrest for possession or sale of those controlled substances. And so he's shoving, you know, handfuls of fentanyl pills into his mouth. What they found when they took him to the hospital later to claiming, again, of having trouble breathing is that he had ingested so much opioids that he was at risk then for a heart attack. And he was told that then. And so this becomes evidence that's particularly relevant to the defense's theory of causation, right? That it was the drugs or it was the COVID or it was uh, other you know, health conditions like you know, being prone to you know, heart disease, whatever, that caused his death, not the, the knee on the neck. And so typically speaking, this kind of evidence is called alternative perpetrator evidence. Judge keeps calling it reverse Spregal. So that's where a defense attorney would say, hey, you know, my client didn't shoot him. This other guy did. Well, we know nobody else had their knee on neck. And so what it is, is this is an alternative cause type argument. So it's kind of a creative way to look at that legal tool, if you will, or theory. And I think the judge is really interested in letting the defense introduce at least a part of that because it bolsters their causation theory. And it sounds to me if he does let it in, he'll create a very nuanced order that says he can let this in, but not that in. If you step over here, then that's going to be a problem because the other side can introduce that. But I think he's particularly interested in giving the defense at least an opportunity to present some of that.
0: The prosecutor said that the defense is doing a full-on trial of George Floyd, who's not on trial. Doesn't that happen frequently in criminal cases? The, the defense tries to bring in information that may not be helpful to the victim.
1: You're exactly right. You know, there's limits to when and how we do that. For example, uh, in a rape case, there's the rape shield. So, you know, if my theory of the case is she, she was, you know, or he was, quote unquote, consenting or the one who invited the encounter. And I want to point to the fact that they do this on a regular basis. This is a pattern. I might have difficulty doing that. But if I want to introduce evidence that my client was setting this person up because, when they claimed right before and they set somebody else up with false allegations, you know, this becomes that victim's modus operandi, and it supports my claim that the charges are false. So character evidence isn't typically admitted, but if you can fit it into an exception, like modus operandi, absence of mistake, right, you can get it in. Typically speaking, and this is where this trial is sort of turned on its head, is that prosecutors try to introduce this stuff on defense. They try to dirty up the defendant by saying, well, this is what he always does, right? Right. So Reverse Spriegel allows the defense to introduce this as to alternative uh, perpetrators. And now this judge is saying it also applies to alternative causes. You know, I don't know how much we're really dirtying up George Floyd's character with regard to alleged drug use, because we know from the incident, you know, in the case that we're trying, he had enough fentanyl in his system, you know, that could kill him. That's already out there. It is what it is.
0: Do you think that in the end that it's going to be the jurors looking at that video for nine minutes? And how hard is it to overcome that?
1: In some ways, it's good that that video went viral when it did because everybody's seen it. We're sort of desensitized to it, right, to a degree. You know, I mean, the first time I watched it, you know, uh, it made me tear up, you know, the second or third time, right? You, You just get more used to the fact that that's what happened. I think um, what the defense will try to do is place a lot of emphasis on their experts who are going to say, yeah, I, you know, I, I see the video. But when I look at the forensic evidence, there is no merit to the contention that the knee on the neck is what killed him. And so, you know, really working hard to take emotion out of that. And I think the defense will be sensible and argue, look, we're not saying this is like great police behavior. We're not even saying that, you know, this was. Probably the best choice to make, but it's not criminal, right? We can we we can not like this. We can you know want things to be different in the future, right? We know that there's some laws passed that will address that, but this isn't criminal because remember, in order for Chauvin to be guilty, he had to have caused the death, and in light of everything else that Floyd had going on, you know, in his body, literally, the state just can't prove that. So we cannot like this, and we can believe that change is warranted, right? And rules and regulations. Um, but that doesn't mean that Chauvin's guilty.
0: Thanks, Krista. That's Krista Groschek, Managing Attorney of Groschek Law. There are some surprising results in the latest jobs data concerning men who have graduate and professional credentials. Joining me is Bloomberg Opinion columnist, Justin Fox. Justin, people usually think the more education you have, the better your job is. What do the stats show?
2: They show that that's generally true. I mean, pretty much across the board, if you have more education, you're both more likely to be employed and your wages are higher. But I was looking at the February jobs data for various things, especially comparing men and women in different categories and how they've fared over the past year. And I noticed, I mean, it's been happening for a few years, it turns out, that men who just have a bachelor's degree – have a higher employment rate, a higher percentage of all of them have jobs than men who have an advanced degree. And there's nothing like that that I know of anywhere else in the statistics where more education results in less employment. They've only been releasing those statistics since 2015, and it's been true almost every month since then.
0: Just to clarify, it's not true with women.
2: Correct. Women who um, have advanced degrees are more likely to have jobs than women with just a bachelor's degree
0: what's the percentage of men in the population who have graduate or professional degrees six percent
2: researchers looked into this i can't say for certain not but i checked in with a couple of people who've done work on um both sociologists actually who've done work on gender and education and employment and um Neither of them had ever noticed this before, although one of them now wants to look into it. (laughs) And what can we attribute this to? I mean, possibly nothing at all. It's just it's a pretty small difference. And, you know, it might not be any big deal. I I guess the things that that sort of were going around in my head and with a couple of people I talked to were one possibility is because in the pay data, which doesn't come out, Quite as frequently, but men with advanced degrees, especially professional degrees like MBAs, they make more money than anybody else. (laughs) And so it's not like this is some disadvantaged, struggling group. So it might be that a bunch of them just quit their job, made so much money that they've dropped out of the labor force. Another one that has been suggested to me by a couple of people since the thing was published is that men with advanced degrees are more likely to be married to very successful women and you know might have dropped out of their labor force because their wife has become a CEO. Um, The only thing is, it's just a little hard to imagine that those numbers of people are so large that they can really affect the statistics like that. Although, once again, the number of men with advanced degrees is pretty large, too. So basically... Number one answer to why this discrepancy is there is probably not a big deal, maybe a quirk of the data, maybe having to do with some risk size dropping out. But the other thing that I've watched over the last couple of years, I've looked at education data, is men really are becoming much less likely than women to get degrees of pretty much any sort. I mean, it's been true for undergraduate degrees since the 70s graduate school enrollment overall since 1988. Law school, it just happened a couple years ago, 2016 that women became the majority of law students. And the most recent data is from the fall of 2018, women made up 56% of undergraduate and 60% of graduate students. There are studies done of like like the highest prestige PhD programs. They're still dominated by men. The highest paying jobs in law are still dominated by men. But you look at the fields where women sort of dominate the graduate degrees, and a lot of them, they're not super high pay, but they're super low unemployment rates, like nursing and education. And so maybe there's something actually going on there where women are doing a somewhat better job of targeting their education for employment. Although the one caveat there is still overall across most different groups by education and race and a lot, women are less likely to be employed than men are, partly just because they tend to get stuck with care responsibilities for kids and other relatives that men usually don't. What did you learn about law school and lawyers? I mean, basically, law school had sort of resisted the trend towards being majority women that other a lot of other programs had, but it finally... and And it definitely... Uh, has been attributed in some quarters to Trump getting elected, although I can't really explain why it would have happened in 2016. But basically, a lot of women were sort of strongly motivated to act and look for ways to fight for their own rights and other people's rights, and that that had driven the bump in law school admissions. Because, I mean, law school applications have been falling for a long time, and they finally sort of bottomed out and, and bounced back a little bit over the last five years. It's women that are driving that, not men.
0: And what about the earnings of men and women?
2: I mean, in general, they're higher for men for just about everything. They have annual census bureau does annual data, and basically, you know, the, the highest earnings group by education is men with professional degrees, who have median um, earnings of one hundred thirty six thousand in two thousand nineteen, and women with professional degrees have median earnings of eighty eight thousand three hundred one. So a lot different. And those with just bachelor's degrees, it's actually a smaller gap. For men, it's 71000 For women, it's 51000
0: Thanks, Justin. That's Bloomberg Opinion columnist Justin Fox. Jones Day's system for paying attorneys is so mysterious that some have dubbed it a black box. But five lawyers who claim the black box waters down women lawyers' compensation recently dropped their lawsuit against the firm. The women had alleged that pay decisions are controlled exclusively by Jones Day's managing partner based on subjective factors that aren't disclosed to the firm's lawyers. But five of the six women who brought the suit told a federal judge on March 11 that they're withdrawing it. Their attorneys and Jones Day representatives declined to say whether the case had been settled. The lawsuit will go forward with one plaintiff, former Jones Day lawyer Katrina Henderson, continuing the suit. Joining me is Erin Mulvaney, senior legal reporter at Bloomberg Law. Erin, first of all, explain why the compensation system at Jones Day is referred to as a black box.
3: So, Jones Day has been accused of having that black box um, because the female attorneys that sued the law firm say that the, the managers keep it very secret what other partners are getting paid. And... So it's basically a matter of transparency about the compensation among lawyers at the firm. Is a managing
0: partner making all these decisions without input from other partners,
3: is that unusual in a law firm? I'm not sure if it's unusual, but the female attorneys who pointed it out um, in their lawsuit um, say that that led to that system, that kind of led, that kept things secret, and there was a... A, a possible bias coming from a top-down system that that had a preference for possibly male partners was the claim in the lawsuit. And they also claimed that it was unusual among law firms um, to have that kind of system.
0: And as far as this lawsuit, five of the six women are withdrawing. Tell us about that. The lawsuit
3: is still going on, but with less people? Yes. The lawsuit that was filed um the news last week was that uh five of the six women who filed who were part of the original lawsuit um withdrew their claims and one of the women will be moving forward but the others will not be and there are very few details on whether there was uh, that was because if there was a settlement um or something like that what else
0: could it be besides a settlement I'm trying to imagine what else would get five people to withdraw their complaint.
3: Well, in a statement, the women the women said that the pay data that was provided by the firm, um, they said that the review of pay data that Jones Day was forced to turn over didn't support allegations of uh, widespread pay disparities. So it, it, it's possible they didn't think they had a case moving forward, but obviously I'm just speculating at this at this point, I think one of the purposes of this lawsuit was to try to um, to have a voice for all the female lawyers at the firm and not just a few of them. And so I think that it's unclear what happened. You know, the lawyers on both sides are being mum about what exactly happened in this case.
0: Is the problem with a black box or a system with no transparency that then there is a reason to suspect that there are disparities
3: in compensation? I think the answer to that question is that a lot of the advocates right now who really want to push for equal pay believe that a key to equality is transparency and, have, and empowering workers with knowledge about what their coworkers make. And so a lot of states have started pushing proposals like that. A few have um, some, some transparency laws are in place, like in California, Washington, and Maryland, that allow a job applicant to ask a salary range for a position, which is almost as far as – Colorado has gone as far as to ask employers to post the job range for that position, um, no matter if it's a, an applicant or um, someone who currently works there. I think this is kind of the next wave in the conversation about how to get to equal pay is to talk about transparency and how to address disparities by giving the workers themselves knowledge about what they make. Several big law firms
0: have faced discrimination claims in recent years. Tell us about the lawsuits against Jones Day and where they stand. Yes, Jones
3: Day has been targeted by uh, several lawsuits claiming uh, equal pay and promotions for female uh, partners. There have been settlements um, before. There, there have also been, and they've all had these kind of similar complaints about lack of transparency about how attorneys are paid, and you know even retaliation against um, women who complain about this kind of male-dominated culture at Jones Day. And then there have also been lawsuits. Jones Day is also fighting a lawsuit um, from a, a married couple who actually worked at Jones Day, and they they were accusing the company of um, gender inequities for the firm's personal leave policy, which is just a, another way that they believe that there was an imbalance between men and women at the firm. But
0: Jones Day is not the only law firm to be sued by
3: lawyers. You have um, Morrison and Forrester. Oh yeah, Morrison and Forrester actually has a similar lawsuit um, filed against them by a pair of women lawyers, also against the maternity leave policy, and alleging that they were punished for taking off time related to pregnancies. And that case appears to be heading to trial. And there have been other cases against law firms um, that have settled. Like I mentioned the a Jones Day lawsuit previously, and uh, Chadbourne and Park which was acquired by uh, Norton Rose Fulbright. They, they settled a lawsuit in 2018. And Ogletree and Deacons um, also settled similar suits and, and disclosed terms in recent years. A lot of settlements, not too many trials. Thanks so much,
0: Erin. That's Erin Mulvaney, senior legal reporter at Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always hit the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.